Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting, and also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to part two of episode 54, Dissecting a Pot and Peg Turkey Call. And I am your host and a guy who stinks at picking college football winners against Vegas lines. I am planted firmly in the bottom third of my college pick'em league. I'm about 30 picks behind the guy that's in the lead, so I don't stand much of a chance of winning for the season. However, I'm not giving up because I can win a week of picks and still get my entry fee back, so I'm not giving up on this yet. My week is coming. Speaking of weeks, we are 145 days, 10 hours, 56 minutes, and 25 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. It's ticking on by, so we're less than five months away now. So today we've got part two of the episode with Adam Prouty and Brent Rogers that I'm going to play for you. There's a lot of great information in it. Before we get into that, I want to thank CYZ4RDS for his review on iTunes. He says, five stars, obsessed with this podcast. At 42 years old, I just started hunting as a way to fill time between fishing trips. Started with Dove here in Texas, and now am ready for turkey. My daughter and I are learning about hunting together, and I stumbled across this podcast. And from the first episode, I was hooked. I've been binge listening to this podcast to get ready for fall turkey season here in Texas. Love this podcast. Can't wait to get out there tomorrow to try out some of the things I've learned while listening. CYZ4RDS, thank you so much for taking the time to leave the review on iTunes. I really do appreciate that. I appreciate the kind words about the show. I am glad that you and your daughter are getting into turkey hunting. There really is nothing like it out there. I think that it won't be long before you get to where you're binge turkey hunting, just like you're binge listening to this podcast. Also, thank you for your email last week as well. I do appreciate that and taking the time to reach out to me. And if any of you guys want to email me about show suggestions or guests that you would like for me to interview on the show, shoot me an email. Andy at IamTurkeyHunting.com Andy at IamTurkeyHunting.com And there's a lot of good 
And we've got a lot of good information coming up in this interview, so we're going to go ahead and get into it in just a minute. But before we do, I want to remind you about the audio quality of the interview. Remember last week I told you that I had more Skype issues, and I believe I've got everything worked out so that we won't be having these problems again. But just like in last week's episode, there is a ton of great info in this week's episode. So let's listen in as Adam Prouty with Prouty Turkey Calls shares the functional differences between one and two-piece strikers. He's also going to give us some weatherproof pot and peg combinations, which I think is awesome. I don't necessarily want to stay in on those days when it's raining, but ruining wooden turkey calls is always a concern for me. In addition to all of that, Adam is going to share the exciting story of his most recent successful turkey hunt and one or two of the things that made that hunt a success. So, enjoy part two of the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Adam, I never did understand why, you know, strikers are one or two piece, and and here you've alluded to the fact that there is an actual functional difference. There may even be reasons why with some woods you you need a two piece. Can you can you tell us more about that? The functional differences, and I'll try to keep it as short and simple as possible. So two pieces, obviously you'll start and you'll have a dowel cut to a certain length. Some guys will cut them shorter than others. Some guys cut them long, and you'll have a head. Some people like to turn their heads, and some people will buy them from the store. Sometimes. It's more, it's, it's a little bit easier to go out and buy a pre-made head. It just runs a little bit better. It's balanced. It's easy to use. So I prefer to buy my heads unless I'm doing something decorative where I have to make a decorative head and I'll have to turn it on the lathe, which isn't really a problem. But you'll have a 5 16th inch of a hole drilled for a certain amount of distance up into the head. And what people do or what call makers do is they take the, the dowel and they'll insert it into the to the head well however far you insert that in there makes a a little bit of a difference and sometimes you'll get gap you'll get problems with glue up you'll get there isn't enough room in there for the glue and the striker is not bonded properly so there's a little bit of air that's why i think you get the inconsistency between strikers when you're running a two-piece is because some are different than others and some have certain things that happen to them along the way in the process sometimes you don't profile the head quite as much sometimes the head is too profiled and generally the the main thing is is the profile of the head you can't but well i shouldn't say you can't because there's a guy out there that actually sells the insert for it but the profile for the head generally you'll find on a a two-piece striker is either you'll be running a dome head or a flat tip or some at a little bit of an angle and stuff but that plays in the ease of use and everything and it just makes the call a little bit easier to run when you're running a domed head on there so striker profile and stuff like that you're kind of limited to striker profile for your your head or your tip i'm sorry when you get running and stuff so most of the time your your tip is going to be a domed or a flat tip or some tip cut at an angle maybe most of the time so another functional difference is is that when you get into one pieces that opens up a whole nother world for you and a lot of people like one pieces because when it makes a little bit different sound and two i find them a little bit easier to control sometimes a beginner can't really pick up a one piece right off the bat and and get, get rocking with it but as you progress down the line, you start to be finding that one pieces make a really good uh, striker, and you don't get that, that gap in between glue up and don't get glue issues like you would with a, a, one, a two piece. The biggest thing you have to worry about is is the length and and making sure that the striker is balanced and it, it you make it to spec and it sounds good on the call. 
but you open up a whole different world to hit profiles when you, you run a one-piece because you're going to be able to turn it yourself and everything as opposed to where you're kind of making a mass, you know, a store-bought head. You bought the dowel and you buy the, the head from a, a distributor and then you just insert them in and glue them up and, you know, cut it to the whatever length you want and round it off and it's, you call it finished. And But with a one-piece, it takes a little bit more time. You know, the call maker's going to go and he's going to turn the, the striker down and he's got to get it all balanced out and he, he profiles the head. You can either get a mushroom tip on there you can do a domed head, a straight tip. You can cut it at an angle. The, the possibilities are endless and stuff when you get to it. So there's drastic functional differences between one piece and two piece. I shouldn't say drastic. But there are some functional differences between there. And you'll find that the sound is it kind of differs a little bit between there. And again, it all depends on who the call maker is and how he makes his one pieces. Some make them a little bit longer than your conventional six-inch striker. Some will make them up to about seven inches, seven and a half inches. Where your two-piece strikers, they usually stay about uh, six and a half inches total and stuff. People don't really stray out of there unless they're going to they're trying for something special or they're trying to match a uh, decorative head with certain things. So, But uh, hopefully that answered your question a little bit better, Brent. Yeah, that is helpful. I've got some of both, and I guess when I go to the woods, if I don't get a turkey, it's not for lack of taking calls with me, but <laughs> I know I take some of both, so that, that is helpful. You know, when you get into carrying an arsenal of strikers, a lot of people say, and I remember during the rapid fire, Andy asked me, you know, five or more strikers. And said, oh, I'm carrying more because hmm. the thing is, is that that's more tones that I can make. I mean, I might take 10, 10 or 12 different strikers with me, but I might only have two different calls in my vest, two different friction calls. And those different strikers are what allow me to produce a different tone. That bird might not bite on something that's high pitched today. He might want something that's mellow. So I'm going to go in and find something that's going to create a melt. It's all about taking a temperature. And I think, I'm not saying pack 30 different strikers in your vest, but I think you kind of cripple yourself if you're only taking two or three different strikers. I think it, maybe four or five maybe six is a good ballpark figure when you're taking strikers because you know you're you might only own one call but those six different strikers are all going to make different noises and what they might sound similar to you but that bird can pick it up and he's not you know he knows what he wants and if you can strike his chords he's coming right Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's a good tip for a lot of beginner hunters out there is to when you're running and gunning and you're using that turkey call to try to strike a gobbler you pull out that slate call from your vest, try two or three strikers or four yeah, strikers absolutely. on that. You know, try them absolutely. all, whatever you're carrying you know, with you because you're going to get something different out of them. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, I, I hear a lot of guys out there say, yeah, issue the sharpest call first and everything. And I mean, that's fine. And if it works for you, issue your sharpest, loudest call right off the bat and everything. But to me, I've always been a fan of uh, a cluck and purr guy. I, I, you know, you hear me on some of the videos when I'm demoing my calls, I'm yelping like crazy and everything. And when I get out into the woods, you generally might hear two or three yelps out of me in a call set. And that's about it. I mean, I cluck, my, my go-to is the cluck and purr, and, but I like to take his temperature, but I, I think less is more right off the bat. I can always work up, but I, I don't I can look down. If he's not going to bite off of one thing, but I I guess got to strike those heart or those chords with him, and he might not want anything that you throw at him that day. He might just be a stubborn old bird that is henned up, and he just doesn't want what you're throwing at him, but I've always been a fan of the cluck and purr right off the bat, 
a lot of people are like, well, it's too light and, you know, he can't hear it. Well, down here, it just depends on where you hunt. If it's windy, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll be right on the, the yelping. I'll, I'll cut and yelp right off the bat. But if I have a calm day and I know I can, the bird's gonna hear me from 40, 50, 60 yards out, I'll, I'll start clucking and purring at a, at a, dis, a decent volume to them and stuff. I just, I don't believe in blowing birds right out of the woods with yelping right off the bat. I just don't like to yelp right up front. I, yeah. That's just me. But yeah, I think that's a great tip that people need to pick up on. Is yes, if you start too much out. calling is too much calling is is a bad thing. Uh, yeah, it, you everybody says you know. Some people say calling is everything, but in my opinion, I think woodsmanship is is ninety percent of the game when you're turkey hunting. And like I told you, I've I've been turkey hunting for twenty two years. That's a that's very little compared to some people out there, but. I think a lot of the old timers that you ask will say that they know the birds, they know where they've been, they know that things change over time, and they they have them patterned, and they know the lay the lay of the land, and all they got to do is just go out there and subtly maybe call to them, and maybe they don't need to call to them at all. But I think woodsmanship plays ninety percent of the role in in successful turkey hunt. I mean, you can go out there and yelp a couple times, a beginner can, and and maybe they'll get lucky, but maybe they won't. But I think I think the woodsmanship aspect of it is a lot better than the, the calling aspect of it. Ten percent calling, and I think you'll hear some people say, "Well, calling is everything." Well, calling is not everything. I mean, to be yeah. successful, you've got to know what you're doing. And you know, 22 years ago, I wasn't. I I didn't think I'd get deep into it and everything. But you know, as time went on, I started learning things. Um, I kind of after I left my grandfather's side when I was 14 years old. He cut me on my own. I started getting intrigued. Well, why are the turkeys roosting there? They're roosted there. To anybody, you can see that the turkeys are roosted there. But why are they roosted there? And you know, why are they moving this way instead of that way? Or why, you know, why are they doing this as opposed to this? You have to learn when you get into this. This is a. It just is go out there and throw a couple yelps. And for some people, that might work. But if you want to be successful over the years and everything, I think, in my opinion, you need scouting plays a huge role in it. And knowing your territory and everything, and I can give you a great example of knowing your territory and things that affect birds. Down here in Georgia, down in southeast Georgia, where we have pine plantation, the timber companies might go in there before spring turkey season. And to be honest with you, they just cut half of my pines out over here on the side of my property. And that could change a bird pattern drastically, you know, and they change them off the bat right in between winter and spring. They're changing their patterns and they the cutting and deforestation of certain areas will change a bird's pattern and stuff. So you have to, those are things that you have to take into consideration. And, and when you go out and scout and you look and you watch and you listen and you learn the aspects of it and stuff, you're not, you're going to have a better success ratio as time goes on. And it, some people don't choose to do it, but I mean, that's one more tool in the toolbox that it's going to give you to be successful. A call might work for you 20% of the time, but the other 80% of the time you might be out of luck. Also, yep, I agree. So, you know, during the rapid fire Q and A, I asked you a couple of questions that were weather related, mm-hmm. and your answer was, "I'm going, baby," or something to that extent. Yep, yep, I'm going every time. I'm going. So, when the weather is bad, let's say it's raining or there's rain in the forecast, can you match up a couple of weatherproof hot surfaces with some weatherproof trackers for us so we know what to kind of keep? as a go-to when those weather conditions are bad so we don't have to sit at home? Yeah, absolutely. 
I think ceramic is a really good one. It's, it's ceramic is kind of impervious to moisture. It's it's a stone surface. It's ceramic, obviously, almost like tile. It's just a little thinner than your house tile and stuff. And it tends not to gather moisture as much. It's easier to to wipe it off if it gets like some dew on it or you know a drop of rain hits it as opposed to where a glass call if a drop of rain hits you. With a glass call, you're going to sit there and spend some time reconditioning, and you might not have that if you have a bird on the way. But ceramic seems to run pretty good, and, and light. you don't want to go out with any, any good call and, and torrential downpour. But if I was going to say anything during a, a downpour, I'd be headed for, for mouth calls if I was going to call at all. But as far as friction calls and less drizzle and light rain and stuff like that, Ceramic is a good one. Bead blasted anodized aluminum is another good one. If you, the the key is is being able to keep these dry and not letting the water get into the to the surface. And on slate, slate is the, probably the the most horrible call you'll ever find during a rainstorm. Don't ever bring it out. You'll ruin you'll ruin the call, or you'll spend months trying to get it to air out to sound the way it did before and stuff. But okay. uh, ceramic and aluminum seem to be good. I'm picky about strikers and. A lot of people say when they go to the weatherproof strikers and stuff, they'll say, uh, yeah, carbon works really good as a weatherproof striker. And yeah, it sure does. Uh, To me, I don't like the tone that it makes. I really have to make my head super heavy if I'm using carbon, and it kind of defeats the purpose of having something compact. Acrylic works really good, and acrylic is a good all-weather one, and it works really good for soft calling as well. You're just not going to be able to get as high-pitched with an acrylic rod in there for a two-piece. And yeah. stuff and to be honest with you diamond wood the process that it goes through and everything the the impregnation of all the the materials and everything diamond wood isn't a bad striker to be running on some of these things and you know light drizzle or, or some some rain and stuff it tends to stay pretty good if you uh, run it and sometimes you're just going to have to sit there with a piece of scotch brite or a little 120 and just kind of dust it off every now and then but it tends not to take in as much water as if you found other wood hickory i leave hickory strikers at home on uh, a rainy day any other type of wood i I tend to leave home but if i'm going to take a wood striker with me i like diamond wood diamond wood will always go out in the woods with me but the acrylic and the carbon it's just all about how you make the striker and like I said, I, I'm not a fan of the carbon, but the acrylic, I like the soft call. I don't generally get too hepped up and start yelping really loud anyhow. And the carbon will give you a higher pitch, and, and it's fine. But I like the softer calling and stuff, so I'll use the acrylic if I've got to bust out a rainproof striker. So that hopefully answered that for you. Can you use acrylic on aluminum, or does it sound better on ceramic, or is it good for both? Yeah, I think you're better off using it with the ceramic. Uh, ceramic tends to, uh, to to run it a little bit better. Aluminum uh, with the acrylic, it just, I don't know. It's all caller preference at that point. I prefer to run it on, you might like to run an, an acrylic on an aluminum. You think it sounds great, but to me, I might think it sounds, eh, it's off. So. Right. Okay. I think it's the caller's preference and everything, and that's just, just another portion to, to hit on is if you're going to buy a custom call, these are questions that you can ask the call maker and stuff. I'm just unlocking the door into my world so you guys can, can get in there and take a glance at you know some of the things that are available out there. Everything You're going to get many more options if you go to a custom call maker. I'm not saying come to me. I'm probably not even at one of the best call makers out there in the country right now. But what I'm saying is, is that I'm trying to open up the door and let you guys see 
the different types of things that are available and options that you can ask the call maker because knowledge is power when you come to, uh, come to the table and you try to buy a custom call because they're not necessarily cheap by any means. You're going to pay anywhere. With me, I, I charge 35 to $45 for my calls. I'm probably one of, the, one of the cheaper guys out there. But some guys charge $50, $60, $70 for their calls, and I've even seen them charge 100 But you want to get your money's worth out of that, uh, that call, so you need to know the questions that you want to ask. And don't be afraid to ask for sound files from a call maker. Say, hey, can you play this for me and make a sound file for me? If he doesn't know how, hey, can you play it over the phone for me? Sound files aren't necessarily 100% accurate. It just depends on where you're playing them. But when I do my sound files for my customers and I put them on the web page and everything, I tend to go to different areas of my property and run the call in different areas on flatland. And I'll run it down in the bottom or I'll go someplace else. So you can get a little bit different taste of how that sounds in different situations and stuff. So, you know, those are things when we go to spend money on a good custom call and everything, those are good questions that to ask. Great tip. I never thought of asking a call maker for a sound file, but I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there's a handful of guys out there that I know. I'm, I don't really – I'm probably one of the most misinformed people. Or I'm like a mushroom. I kind of just say to my own, but I don't go on to forums or anything like that. But the guys that I, I have friends on Facebook, they like to make sound files, and I love to make sound files to get the sound out there. You're not going to market your product any other way. I mean, I tend to do a few small shows every year and everything, but let people hear the difference between that and something that's store-bought. It, it opens their eyes up once they get it in their hand because they're going to notice a difference right off the bat if it's a good call maker and he's made the call really good. It, that thing will jump to life in your hand. It'll feel like you're holding a real hen turkey almost, something short of it anyways. But you'll you'll know the difference right off the bat. And sound files are just a, a good good tool to use when you're going to pay that money for that, that nice custom call. You can hear it and everything. So it's just one more tool for the toolbox. Adam, I love that verbiage there of the call jumping to life in the hands of the caller. So I don't want to be self-incriminating here, but I'm guessing that regardless of the craftsmanship or potential of the call, that the single biggest variable to producing good and consistent calls and maybe even making the call last is probably the caller. So I'm wondering, what are a few things that you can tell us that you see people do to calls when they pick them up to play them that make you cringe? Oh, yeah. So I go to a few shows out of the year, and generally when it gets to be about mid-February, my shop is packed full of people every night. And I feel more like a hostess than a call maker sometimes uh, (laughs) at that time of the year. But I'll have you know, close to 50, 60, 70 calls laid out in here, all, you know, different types of surfaces, plate, ceramic. I'll have all the conditioning materials in here in the shop and different strikers all laid out. And I'll bring out all the, the jizz and jazz and all that stuff and, and let them have at it and let them pick them up and run them for themselves because, I mean, they're the ones that's going to buy it and I want them to be happy with them running it and stuff. But one of the biggest things that make me cringe, Brent, is when they pick the call up and they put a death grip on it and they, they're gripping that side so tight and you can see the white knuckles on there, their hands and stuff. And they're beginners and, you know, somebody obviously hasn't taught them right or they haven't been taught at all and they're just starting off and you can't hold it against them. So you just come over and you start asking them, you know, how long have you been calling to this and that? And generally, they'll tell you that, yeah, I have, I have very little experience with a friction call, but they put a death grip on that call like it's going to escape from them and stuff like it's a live hen. But the side of that 
call or that pot plays a crucial role in it in the tail end of that call and stuff. And I don't want to release the Colonel Sanders secret recipe too much, but that side plays a good factor in it and everything. And when you grip it too tight, you're not going to get that life out of the call like you would. But my tip for them is use your fingertips. Just hold the call with your fingertips. And if you were to turn your hand over upside down, that call needs to fall right out of your hand. It, that's how light you need to grip that call and stuff. You know, a lot of people have find frictions are, are hard to use because they can't seem to get the control issue down between the striker and their hand. And I mean, that's fine, but the depth grip is always something that makes me cringe. Another one is goes back to grip again, and some people will set that call. It's flat in their hand, and it covers the sound hole. Well, the sound holes are what lets that great sound out of the call, and when it gets muffled, you don't get that full effect of the call. There's a time and place for it. Uh, you can dumb down a turkey call and make it mellow out, and you can set it in the palm of your hand, but if you're trying to get a nice sharp yelp and other things out of it, covering the sound holes probably isn't the, the time to do that. <laughs> so yeah. another... Uh, Another good one. Like I said, I usually put striker materials and conditioning materials out on the table. And one of the first things that somebody will do, they'll pick up a slate call and then they'll go right for the 120 grit sandpaper and stuff that's sitting here on the table. And they'll start trying to sand one of the calls and you immediately have to stop them and be like, no, 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 no. Sandpaper has its own place, but it's not on, on a slate call at all. What you're doing when you put sandpaper on a slate call is you're wearing down that surface. As soft as it is, you're going to diminish the surface off of that call, and what you're going to do is either create a sweet spot or a dead spot in that call. A good slate call plays good all the way around 360. You shouldn't have too many sweet spots in it and stuff, but the, the old sandpaper to slate is another, another one that makes me cringe. And then another one is generally I condition my glass calls before they leave the shop. That way I know 100% that that call played great before it left. About a week or so later, you, sometimes I'll get calls in that, that come back broke. Well, what did you do? Well, I left it in my car overnight. Well, what was the temperature? Well, the temperature was like 90 degrees out that day. Well, that's going to make the glass break. Extreme hot or extreme cold is what I said in the beginning of the segment. Wood has a tendency to move slightly if it's in a controlled environment and everything. But if you put it in extreme heat or extreme cold, that wood's going to move. And what it's going to do is it's going to pinch down on that glass and it's going to look just like a a, a bicycle, folks, all the way through it. It'll be cracked right in the center and you'll have, it'll be spider webbed all the way out and everything. So that's another thing that that really makes me cringe and stuff is, is the lack of call care. Don't ever leave your calls in the hot heat or cold overnight and everything. Always take them inside, keep them cool and dry. But a good tip is is that generally, I think if you've ran a friction call for some time, you know that sometimes we just run out of the house with our vest in the morning, and then we go to pull the call out of our vest, and all of a sudden we've got a, a layer of dew that condensation that forms on the call and stuff as soon as we go to try to use it. And one thing that I do is I like to I like to bring my vest out an hour or two ahead of time in the morning. I'll wake up a little bit earlier, put my vest outside that morning if it's not raining or scorching hot. I'll let it acclimatize to the conditions or the elements that are out that morning so that way all I got to do is just condition that call right off the bat and then it did the run and everything but those are some things that make me cringe uh, there's probably more but those are the top three right off the bat yeah good info no doubt and that you made me cringe when you mentioned the 120 grit sandpaper on slate <laughs> yeah scotch bright that's all it, that's all it takes guys scotch bright yeah. Yep. So go grab one out from underneath the sink when the wife's not looking. Take it and put it in your turkey vest. And when when uh, she's 
gone out shopping or she's at work or something, then go cut, take the scissors and cut it into squares and you'll yep. have all you need for about 10 years of turkey season. Well, Lowe's looks at me weird every time I go in there. I'll They might just stock up on them, but I'll go in and buy out all their Scotch-Brite or their green pads. I'll be going up to the cart counter with, like, a cart full of uh, Scotch-Brite, and the cashier just looks at me weird, and I was like, don't even ask. And I just I pay and get out of there. What is this guy going to do with 1,000 packs of Scotch-Brite? But I go through them really quick, and the thing is, is they wear out as you use them, obviously, so... I tend to go through them pretty quick, especially with slate calls. Obviously, you know, I spoke enough about slate it being my favorite. So I, I tend to use them quite a bit. And then if you have 50, 60 slate calls that you've made and everything and you're conditioning them and you're playing them and trying to get them ready to go, you're going through them left and right. And then you got to give a couple to the customer when it goes out. So that way you can you can show them when it comes that, hey, I gave you the right conditioning stuff for the, the call surface. And I go yeah. through them like wildfire. So. Oh, yeah. And just so we kind of finish out that whole conditioning thing, when you're using that scotch Sprite on that piece of slate, how much pressure are you putting on the slate? No, not very much. The, yeah. What I'm doing is I'm just getting enough where I can I can change the color of that, that slate to a nice, dusty little gray. That's it. I'm not pressing down very hard. I'm just enough. I don't know how to even explain it. Firm enough where you could just use it with one finger to do it. And so you don't want, like I said, even the scotch Sprite is going to wear off that surface, but not as much as if you were to throw 120 grit sandpaper on there. But over time, you're going to wear that surface down a little bit. And I mean, I've had I've had the same slate call on my vest for probably the last five six years, and it's it's probably going to get ready to get retired here pretty soon. So <laughs> it, it's been it's been through the ringer, but it still sounds really good, and it just the surface is starting to get a little bit worn and stuff. So, yeah. but yeah, it, you don't want to press hard on on any of the slate with anything. You don't want to grind it down too much. Right. And Adam, I just wanted to clarify. So I know sandpaper comes with some calls. So for for a glass call, for instance, yeah. sandpaper might be okay. But what, what you're saying is, yeah, keep it away from the from the slate. Is that yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, keep, sandpaper has no place near a slate call. Generally, I don't condition my striker head with sandpaper either. I'll use a heavier-duty grit soft right for those who, because when you get into sandpaper on striker tips, you're going to end up reforming that head and maybe changing the profile, and it's going to throw, it might throw your call off a little bit. So, Scotch mm-hmm. Bright is good on tips of strikers, and it's good on, on, on slate. And I also use it on glass, and a lot of people kind of look at me funny when I say, oh, you know, I use Scotch Bright on glass, and they're, they're like, well, why? Well, I run a, three different types of conditioning on glass. Before, when I break it, I'll use a conditioning zone, and then I tend to go in one direction with the conditioning zone on the glass. And glass calls are kind of funny because there's, if you don't condition a glass call right, it's going to not get the full potential out of it. There is a, a little bit of a secret behind conditioning a glass call, and it has to do with lining up the sound hole with your conditioning spot and everything. So I won't go too much into that, or I'll, I'll be getting death threats next week. But I'll condition in one direction – the key on a glass call is the condition in one direction. After you break it going back and forth, that's the last time you should be going in two different directions on that glass call. When you're using that conditioning stone, scrape it out one direction, and then what I'll do is I'll switch to a piece of 120 grit sandpaper and then just put it right in the same direction that I was going, move it out a little bit more, and then what I do is I just finish up with a scotch right and dust it off. I don't polish it. What I do is I just brush it off, and what it does is it cleans out those little striations that you made so you can you get a 
little bit more grip on that and stuff. And you'll get a smoother running call, uh, glass call or crystal call when you do it that way and stuff. And sometimes you have to condition glass a little bit more. And, and crystal, you don't want to condition it too much and stuff. If you're really digging into crystal, then you run the risk of, uh, of breaking it. Some crystal is a little bit thinner than others, and it doesn't. you don't have to dig in as quite as deep as you do on regular glass. Great yeah. tips. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, Adam, you've given us a lot of great information about calls and helping us be able to go in and identify when we're at that call maker's booth and there are 70 calls up there and 50 different strikers rather than go, tr- go through and trying every single call and striker combination. You've given us an, an idea of what we need to go in and kind of key in on to start with, and that's awesome. I really appreciate that, and that's really what I wanted to accomplish in the call, and I think that's where Brent was, was talking about going with the topic. But let's talk about hunting for a second. Okie doke. Let's talk about killing for a second. How about that? Well, that that's one of my that's one of my favorites during turkey season. <laughs> Tell us about your most recent successful turkey hunt and the one or two keys that contributed to the success of that hunt. Oh, it, it's good that you asked me that because just this last year's last hunt probably one of the I guess you could say it's a reaffirming point in your in your turkey hunting career that patience and persistence really pays off comes down to it. So my buddy and I, Scott Wells, he had the nickname Tojo long before I met him, but I call him Tojo. He got a line up on a, on a good gobbler. And down here in Georgia, if you don't lease property, it's very hard to find government or state-run property and stuff. There is some, but it's not as plentiful as if you were going to Missouri, where the Mark Wayne National Forest down there in southeastern right. Missouri and up towards the center of Missouri and stuff. But Generally, Scott gets some good leases throughout the years, and he so graciously invites me along with him, and he is probably one of the biggest turkey nuts that I have, I've met in my time here at Georgia and stuff. I talk to a lot of people who love turkey hunting, but this he goes out on a daily basis and just goes and stalks turkeys and, and scouts them during the, the fall and finds them and everything. Just And he took me along with him just a couple of days ago, and we were just knee-deep in birds when we were scouting along the roads in this new lease that he has and stuff but he he has put me on a lot of birds and sometimes I think he spoon feeds me a little bit but in trade uh, he takes along a good caller with him so he's a good caller but he's not as good as I am so it's kind of a fair trade he puts me on some birds on his leases and I'll call for him on his birds and we usually have good luck running it that way but from the day one of season last year I don't know how everybody else was doing in Georgia because once turkey season comes in I drop off the radar and I you don't hear anything from me until the end of April maybe the beginning of May but he we were hearing birds left and right and it was the same old song and dance every time we'd get them within 30 yards and, and then they'd drop off into a clear cut and they'd go out of sight and we'd sit there for an hour or two three and we'd just wait and you know they nothing ever show up and so we'd go into lunch mode, and after about probably the first couple of weeks of doing this, it got relentless. And then finally, we ended up feeling the deal uh, on a few birds. And But the last hunt of the year that me and Scott went on was something really cool because I don't get much of it. Usually, I can go out. I've done a lot of good homework. I know where the birds are, and I can generally tell just by the geography of which way they're going to go if they have hens with them. And that's a whole other battle down here in Georgia, too, because we don't have a fall season, so there's really no hen harvest. You might get a guy there that's hung up with nine, ten hens in a tree, and that's almost next to impossible until midday to try to get him away from those birds and stuff. But we had a bird that Scott's buddy heard a few nights earlier, gobbling up on a, a small little river and stuff and this bird was gobbling up there and he called Scott and told him hey you know I got a bird you know probably about 300 400 meters up behind my house 
he's free for the taking. And so we went in there a few days later, and it was pitch black. And I don't like to use a light when I go into the to the woods in the morning, especially when I'm turkey hunting, because you never know what's in the trees around you, everything. And that light is just one little beacon that's going to send the birds in a different direction, maybe when they fly down. So I tend to go in in the dark, just kind of pity pad around with my feet and just watch a little bit closer and stuff. But we got in there and we sat down and we got into what looked like a cleared area and the sun starts coming up and the bird starts gobbling his head off and he's gobbling on the roof. And generally my rule is, is that I've never had good luck birds that sit there and gobble on the roof all for at least an hour. The bird gobbled on the roof for an hour. It's always been my battle. Everything. So birds that gobble on the roof for me are bad omens. It usually is a, it signifies that they've been pressured. And I found that a lot in Missouri when I hunt, uh, hunted public land. It's an area that I used to love to hunt. It was so high pressured all the time that the birds would just stay on the roof for hours and gobble. And that's kind of where I got my bad omen from <laughs> out of that. Is that. I generally try to stray away from birds that are still on the roof a couple hours after sunlight go gobbling. Unless it's foggy or something like that, I, I think it's a bad omen. But this bird stayed up there for at least an hour after sunup and he was just gobbling his head off the whole time and I didn't hear another bird that morning that we could move to so I looked over at Scott and I said well we'll sit and ride him out and maybe he'll fly down and I'm not even going to call to him so I just sat there and mums the word I just shut up in color and, and watched everything that's going on around me and sooner or later I noticed that I seen two or three hens moving down off of my left side, and I was like, okay, well, this might be a good sign. And there was a, an old cut field behind us, and the hens were moving out towards that field. And about 10 minutes later, the bird is still up on the roost gobbling, and the hens are moving down through there. And I'm thinking that, well, with these hens moving, he's got to either come off or there's another bigger bird in behind these hens that he's, he's going to be following and stuff. So I kind of drew my attention over to the left, and the hens just kept on coming past. There was probably 10, 15 hens that walked in behind us, and sooner or later, they're in that field 100, 200 yards behind us. And that bird's still up there, and all of a sudden he flew down, and I heard him fly down and hit the ground, and all of a sudden he just he shut up, and then he'd gobble once or twice. So I called to him lightly, go fucking purr. He'd answer back. He'd gobble. Same place. This went on for about two hours. We were on this bird for two hours, and I was sporadically calling. I didn't call. I think I might have called to him seven or eight times, and that was it. Well, if you've ever hunted with me, you know that I love to drink at least two pots of coffee before I even go in the morning out to the woods. So it's getting about time for tinkle time, and I've really got to go bad. And this bird is still up there. I can't see him or anything, and I know that I cannot focus with a full blast. So I look over at Scott, and I was like, it's time for a commercial break. So I just carefully looked around, and I was like, I'm going to blow a bird out of here. I know it. I know it. But I, I really had to take take a leak. <laughs> at that point, I, I kind of slowly rolled over, and we were behind a big oak tree. So I kind of crawled to the back of the oak tree, stood up, got done with my business, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go by the three strikes and, you know, you're not out turkey hunting type rule. There's always something else that you can throw at a bird that's going to get him and it might work. So I reached around the tree and Kojo's just kind of looking at me like, you know, stop moving, you fool. And I reached around and I grabbed a glass hall out of my bag and I pulled up the glass hall and I gave two series of kiki runs. And all of a sudden that bird hammered. And I shut up and I got to the other side of the tree because he hammered two or three times. And that was the most he answered probably in a row to that call. And he hammered again and he was running. And I could hear that bird breaking brush and limbs coming down to the woods. And he was breaking off to my left almost to where I started seeing the hens coming out and they followed the line behind me. So I started thinking, oh, well, this bird's going to come to the left and he's going to break to the left. 
mind you, everything in front of me is I've got maybe two open shooting lanes in there. And at this point, this bird's going berserk over two, two little kiki runs, and he's running, and I can hear him breaking stuff on the way in, and he's probably about 40 yards out, but I can't see him because of all the, the little spindles and everything. So he's just going berserk and berserk. I mean, just two kiki runs, and that was all it took to seal the deal and everything on this bird. Well, he ends up cutting short, and he cuts about 10 yards in front of me, and he gets into one of those shooting lanes, and I had a flip second, and that was all she wrote. He, that was the last time he gobbled, and that was it. But the takeaway to that is is that, you know, 22 years of, of doing this, and you got to always know that persistence and patience is always going to be one of your keys to success. Just because the birds are shut up doesn't mean that they're not there still. And just because they still are gobbled in the same place after they fly down doesn't mean that they're not callable and they're not going to come to you. Sometimes that's not the case, but uh, other times I've had more success with birds that sit there and they'll, they'll sit and gobble a little bit here and there and they'll be gobbling in a different hour at the same place. And just, you know, every bird's different. And you got to understand that, you know, you got to have the persistence and patience to, to go the distance with a bird. Sometimes I think that was probably one of the longest hunts that I've had in a couple of rooms, probably about seven or eight years. I mean, all in all, I think it was probably about mm, three or four hours total that it took us working this bird. And, you know, it goes back to the a pot call can do a lot of different calls. Anything short of feeding wines and gobbling on it, you can get a vast array of whatever you need out of it and everything. And that kiki was the one thing that just ate him alive and he couldn't take it. So it's kind of uncommon to hear hear someone say they use the kiki in the spring woods. You usually it's a call you break out in the fall. But that kiki, something about it, he didn't like it. And he he wanted it, so he came running. That's exciting. That that is what sealed the deal for me when I first started turkey hunting. I'd killed a couple of turkeys in the years prior, but one day I went out by myself on public land and had a turkey responding and called. He responded, was probably, I don't know, 75, 80 yards from me. And I sat down and I called to him again, and that joker came just as fast as you could run, came right into the call. Sometimes you think there's a tank barreling through the woods or it's a deer coming at you. They're they're just going like they're going like a bat out of Haiti coming at oh, you yeah. sometimes. When they come running in like that, that is some kind of exciting. The the, the really exciting ones is when they're, they'll be on the roost and you know you'll have the hens down there with you and you make a couple tree calls and that joker's busting every limb flying to you and everything and he'll land five feet in front of you and you just sometimes you have to shoot him in self defense sometimes you don't have to but sometimes it's self defense. Good deal. Tell us a little bit about how we can get in touch with you if we have questions about pot and peg calls that you know, maybe somebody wants to hear that I didn't cover and Brent didn't ask you. And yeah. also, you know, you're a call maker, so I want to give you the opportunity to plug some of your calls. You sent some pictures, and I've seen some online, and they're very, very pretty and look to be very well-made calls. So mm-hmm. anybody's interested in checking out your calls, how can they get in touch with you for that as well? Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate that. I put a lot of I put a lot of time and effort and everything into my calls, and I always tell people aesthetics don't kill turkeys, but it just is a little nice to add to the hunt when you have a pretty call to put in front of a, a bird for a picture to go on your mantle or, or whatever but it's hey, they're not only pretty but they're practical and you know I've, like I said I've been blessed to bring home a little bit of hardware from some of these competitions and stuff so they've been proven in the field and they've also been proven in front of the five or seven judges at these competitions and stuff so but yeah it's really a blessing to, to have learned and, and taken this as far as it's gone over the, the past seven or eight years that I've been doing it and 
But uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, uh, probably the best way to get a hold of me is on my Facebook account. Uh, you can just search Adam Prouty and it'll come up. But the best way is to Adam, uh, type in Adam Prouty Turkey Calls in the Facebook and go give us a like on our page and, and you can ask any questions. I'm really fast about getting back to people. I have a couple staff guys that monitor my Facebook page. Andy Gaynor is one of them. He's a good friend and he does a really good job of getting back to people, especially if he lets me know if somebody's got a question for me, he'll call me at midnight a message comes in and so we're really fast at getting back to people and another one if you're looking to look at some of the calls you can see them on facebook too but if you're looking to see some of the calls or buy one you can go to www.adamcrowdyturkeycalls.com and i just don't do friction calls i do i do some other stuff that might not be on the web page but i do locator calls owl and crow I have a really dynamite Owl Hooter coming out this year, and it sounds phenomenal. Pro calls, woodpecker calls. I got into turning deer grunts this year and everything for some buddies, and they came out really, really good. Kind of hard to mess them up, but they came out really good, and they're really pretty too. So, yep, that's how you get a hold of me. And if you have any questions, they can always get a hold of me on the Facebook page and stuff. So. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this topic and educate us on this. I really appreciate that and appreciate you sharing the exciting story of shooting that turkey. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, I I really appreciate you having me on. It was was a good opportunity and stuff. Like I I told you before, I, I like to educate. I'm not about just plugging myself. I like people to know that, hey, there's guys out there just they're just like me. They're they, they go to work every day at at their job and they come home and they make some phenomenal art and they're good sounding turkey calls and it might not be me that you're looking at for a turkey call maker, but there's guys that put their heart and soul into this this hobby or what becomes an addiction and an affliction and everything else that we drop hundreds of dollars on at the wood store and tool stores and stuff and they just put a lot of time and effort and a lot of pride into their work as opposed to some people or some companies and store-bought stuff that you're going to buy you weren't going to get that pride and you weren't going to get that that craftsmanship and that story that goes along with the hunt and I never heard anybody say in, in my years of doing it boy that big box door call that done that look so pretty on the mantle or done that look pretty next bed that I shot. You know, it's something, it's an heirloom that you can pass on to your kids. They get older and everything, and it's got a story to it. Everything's got a story to it with the custom calls, you know. You know, uh, my grandfather passed down one of his butternut boxes to me when I bought my first turkey my first year at age 12 and everything. He passed down a, a great box call, and I still have it to this day. And it's got little hash marks where he always used to put a hash mark in the lid and everything, and he would write the year on it. And it, it's just something I go it's something to tell a story. It's no different with a pot call. I've seen some people who buy some of my most beautiful pot calls, and they'll sit there, and they'll put a little knock in them, put a pen, or a, they might use a marker, or they might use their pocket knife on the edge of the pot. It's a yeah. story to pass on, and it's a, it, the call will tell a story, and it's, it, it goes along with the art and everything. We love to see people kill birds with our calls, and it doesn't matter if it's me or another call maker or whatever but we love to see the success that it has and it's not for our ego it's just it makes everything all worth it at the end of the day all the time that we spend out here all the materials that we've wasted when we first started learning it just makes everything worth it so yeah well brent thank you as well for making the suggestion for the topic i really appreciate that and i know there's going to be a lot of listeners who appreciate that as well and thanks for taking the time to come on the show with us i appreciate your input It was my pleasure, and thanks for, again, being willing to put on some of the ideas. You've got a great thing going, and hope you keep it going. I appreciate that. I consider this to be your show, so everybody that's listening, 
these topics and these shows are only as good as you guys will let them be. So you've got ideas, you've got recommendations. I'll promise you there's someone else out there that's wondering the same thing or wants to learn about the same thing. And so don't hesitate to shoot me an email on those and we'll find the right guest to interview and we'll get them on and pick that person's brain just like we did with Adam. And thanks guys to both of you. I'm going to let you get to your evening and I really appreciate it. Let's do this again sometime in the not-too-distant future. All right. Sounds good. You have to come down here to Georgia to do some hunting. Oh, man. You better be careful. You know I'm just a short drive away. Hey, bring it. Bring it. I can be there in the morning. Hey, if we had open season, I'd tell you that. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> the same goes The same goes here. You want to come shoot one of these stubborn Alabama birds, you holler at me, and we will definitely make that happen. And, and Brent, the offer is open to you as well. If you want to come to Alabama and shoot one, you got my email address. Hit me up, and we'll do it to it. Great. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Hey, Brent, thanks for the topic. I appreciate it. And you have a good fall season, and good luck to you. Absolutely. We'll be in touch. Um, i got to come on one of those calls. All right. Sounds good. i got a few ready for you. Excellent. Brent, don't forget to send us some pictures, too. Hopefully you'll have some success in the morning and can send us a couple of pictures and, and a good story to go with it. Absolutely. All right. Well, have a great night. Thank you again, and we'll talk again soon. All right. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that part of the interview. I very much appreciate Adam and Brent bearing with me through the Skype technical issues that we had. I think the end result of this podcast, after all is said and done, I think that this episode of the podcast is one of my all-time favorite episodes. And I'm glad to have gotten to know both Adam and Brent a little bit better. Before I let you go, if you like this episode, then I'm going to ask you for a few favors. First, go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a review. Second, subscribe to the show. Subscribing does not cost anything. It is free. And after you subscribe, you'll be notified automatically when a new episode of the show is posted. So you'll be sure not to miss any of the great info and great guests that we have on this show. Number three, forward and share the link to the show on social media and tell all of your hunting buddies about the show as well. The more listeners, the better. Number four, and this is most important, Be sure to listen in next week for another great show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.